Rusty Quill presents. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome to SBRR, a retrospective on Spirit Box Radio. I'll be going through the show part by part, thinking about the themes and my intentions as a writer. These retrospectives will include heavy spoilers for the show, so please go back and listen before you tune into them. Already caught up? Awesome! I'm Ava Major, creator of Spirit Box Radio. Welcome back to the show. Here we are, wrapping up the end of season one. How exciting! You may have noticed that in the last episode, I didn't speak too much directly about some of the characters and moments which you might think deserved a bit more attention. That's because I'm planning to do some character-specific SBRRs between this part and the start of season two. These will zoom in on characters individually and in conjunction with others, and will also look at some specific story moments I want to explore in a bit more depth. Yes, this is why there wasn't any conversation about SBR 1.27, because yes, it does need a bit more of a close focus on it, I think. I, well, I don't really understand what's been going on, to be honest with you, faithful listeners, but to those of you asking on the forums, I can tell you that you're officially all I have left. I can't reach Kitty. Hannah won't talk to me. Rotidia answers the phone, but hangs up when she hears it's me on the other end of the line. Um is dead. And Oliver... Oliver is gone. If episodes 11 through 20 are where the show's tone is carved out, and 21 to 30 we're introduced to its systems, 31 through to the end of season 1 are where we really start to see the plot beginning to twist, and the pressure on Sam is beginning to increase. We're friends, aren't we, faithful listeners? Though I don't know you, surely by now you know me. I'm just trying my best. It seems like Madame Marie... I don't know. I don't know what any of this means. The foundations for the long-term conflicts for the show's multi-season arcs really get locked in. It's a super exciting time when the pace really starts to pick up on Arch, and connections are starting to get made, which gives every episode an exhilarating little rush. I am very lucky. I lived through an entire house collapsing on me and six years of some sort of weird magical coma and... I I don't know. There are these people declaring their loyalty to me from all corners and I don't understand why. I'm not sure loyalty is a thing I ever want to inspire, but... I'm sure lucky to have it, I think. One thing I'd like to focus in on specifically here is that by this point in making Spirit Box Radio, my approach to sound design had completely revolutionised. And it's really noticeable to me in these episodes. Faithful listeners, it's the window. The second window from my bedroom, but... But it's here in the studio. Even though we're in the basement, we're underground. 
this window, it, it looks out over a street. It, it's not the street that this house stands on. Making 1.27 actually completely slaughtered my laptop. I had to replace it mid-edit, and my new machine was so much better at coping with the editing process. This new functionality led me to re-edit the entire show, which had released to that point, something I've now actually done three times, and have been doing again as I've been going through making these retrospectives. It's not something I particularly set out to do when I started making these episodes. I wanted to come back to the show and evaluate it for what it is, and for the most part, I feel I have done that, but I've also felt compelled throughout the process to go back and polish those early episodes. It's really interesting. On previous occasions, I went into that revisions process feeling quite critical and down on myself and my work, but I remember that I'd worked my hardest when I first released those episodes. I put them out into the world because I was proud of them, and an audience loved them too. This is something I was pretty quick to try to make myself forget. I'm still not very confident in my skills as a sound designer, so it's really easy for me to look back at my early work and feel like it must have been awful. In revisiting the first season this time, I've actually found a lot to love, which I hadn't realised before. That makes me really proud, not just of the show, but of myself and my relationship to my work, particularly to my older work. They're all gone. It's because of me. It's all my fault. I did this. I'm bad. I'm wrong. There's something wrong with me. Or Em wouldn't have done this. She wouldn't have done this. I'm wrong. I'm broken. I'm bad. Gods, I just wish there was someone listening besides you, faithful listeners. Knowing knowing you're there, I feel okay, but I just wish that someone, anyone, no, not anyone. I want Em. I want to talk to Em or... I think it's really important as a creator and also just as a person in the world to remember that you owe everything you are today to who you used to be. Every accomplishment and achievement, that's all the work of a you in the past. Maybe that person was struggling with stuff. Maybe they didn't have the skills you have now, but they were trying their best. Everyone starts at their own beginning. Even if everyone's beginning is radically different, they're all the same in that they are all just that, a beginning. I'm starting to sound like a terrible combination of Rytidia and Sam at this point, so I'll move on. There are places in the depths of this world, under miles of ocean or stone, where creatures are born, live and die, entirely in darkness. We begin episode 31 with Oliver gone and Sam having lost themselves in the mundane rhythms of every day, just barely forcing himself to get by. So much has happened to them since the show's beginning, and it all begins to look bleak for them at this stage. And then a bolt out of the blue. A new caller. You woke up where? I'm sorry, I don't know exactly. Sometimes I think it's a train station. Other times it's a street I half remember. Sometimes it's a small room. But it's never all there. I love the performance that Rose brought to this character. It's spooky and ethereal and exciting. I love how they're frustrated with Sam for not fully understanding his powers, but at the same time, understanding of the situation. It's a great sequence for exploring some aspects of Sam's power and where its limits might be. Yes, that's, that's it. I'm dead, Sam Enfield, and you did this to me. I killed you! No, no, you, um, you trapped me here, caught me here, suspended in a last suspension at the moment of death. 32 continues on in much the same vein, with spooky messages coming through Sam's computer, but then 
the first part of the finale comes into focus. I fail to see how it matters either way. All I know is this sucks, and we are no closer to finding out how to stop this. Do we need to know anything? Can't we just end things? Either way, we'll get what we want. Yeah, right. We hear the full set of the sync conveniences. I remember hearing the rehearsal that Baka, Kay and Thais did for this and being blown away by them bringing these characters to life. In reality, they're separated by continents as actors, living in three completely different time zones, but they bring such a cohesiveness to the group. I love them so much, and I'm so proud of the work they all did bringing these characters to life. Really, though, the Ding Dong of 1.32's episode title is a reference to the song from Wizard of Oz, and it's talking about M. I want to lie to you. I want to tell you everything was fine. I... It is fine now. I'm fine, Anna. Whatever happened, it's not going to break me to know. Sam, I... So tell me about it. Well, my earliest memory is a beach. Alex's performance through Anna's long, heart-wrenching monologue about growing up with Em is just so wonderfully nuanced. It's our first unflinching look at the realities of the Enfield's childhood situations. Sam has no context for any of it. You'd come back from uni. You didn't stay at the house again after. That's the earliest thing you can remember? I think so, but it's still hazy around there. Things don't straighten out properly until I'm sort of 17, 18. I, I had no idea. It's like your whole past has been stolen from you. I, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. How would you? You weren't here. I... I know. I left. Right after Anna has shared that vulnerability with Sam and connected them to a part of their past they've previously had no access to, what happens? Now. Did you... Yes, I did. You guys, move the bloody chair! <gasps> oh my god! The Impossible House reconnects the siblings, and Kitty is able to escape the inconvenient sins by coming through the trapdoor. I like to think of the trapdoor as being a character in itself. It's a part of Sam and represents access to knowledge. It can demand attention through simulating rhythmic knocking sounds and shows up in odd places, delivering Sam access to information and even locations he needs most in the moment. It's a part of the impossible house, which is a part of Sam, so it's functioning like an independent piece of him, which pops up and reunifies information. Actually, it's worth pausing here and thinking about the impossible house as being a part of Sam a little more thoroughly, and the implications of that, considering it's the site of so much of season one's conflict. The inconvenient sins are trapped inside of Sam, causing chaos in the house. Also, the remains of Madame Marie are locked inside of there too. It's interesting because Sam is so profoundly naive, so disconnected with this part of himself, that even though his mother's murder happened literally inside of a pocket dimension which is created and maintained by his psyche, he's unaware of it. The house holds memories both figuratively and literally, by appearing as it did when the Enfield children were young, despite the real house having been destroyed, and also by serving Sam hints and clues as to events in his past. What's also interesting about this is the idea of the impossible house as something that both wants connection and repels it. Anyone who might have a chance at understanding what it is, Kitty, Madame Marie, the loyal assistants, they're all repelled by the house, but in a non-violent way. At the same time, 
It lures in characters like Emily and Georgie, desperate for company and connection, just like the rest of Sam is too. With the sins, it holds them but doesn't absorb them, leaving them to endlessly wander its impossible hallways. I think something sad about all of this is that Madame Marie went through the trapdoor and into her old office to escape them, like the trapdoor might have appeared in the studio to try to save her. I don't know for sure, but I am pretty certain that she was allowed to visit the impossible house in this way too sometimes, though I'm not sure she'd ever have been allowed past her own old office. Sam's still trying to connect with her in these contradictory, piecemeal ways. I'm going to skip ahead now right to the resolution of the conflict with Coven Babe 666 and holding the group seance, which allows the siblings to properly enter the impossible house. At Coven Babe 666, I think you're right and we should hold a group seance. And send. Oh, Coven Babe 666 is typing already. They say... I thought you'd never ask. They say, I'm yours to command as you will, heir apparent. Oh, you're another one of those. Regular caller Beth is typing. She says she's in. And mystery caller, and Carl, and Emily, and Georgie from Dizzeth. And so many people I've never seen before. So many of them all at once typing, I'm in, and let's do this, and a hundred other variations. It's crucial that this happens through connecting with others, through listening to an audience and allowing help to come. It's not Sam acting alone that allows him to get inside the house. It's accepting help from others. The microphone. It's here. The red light's still on. Uh, Faithful listeners, can you hear me? I'm quite proud of the house's sound design. This constant background chatter throughout the whole episode, making all the conflicts with each of the sins feel more close, more threatening in that closeness. Kitty and Anna, is it? Ekaterina Erzabet and Anastasia Morgana. Much maligned daughters of the illustrious Madame Marie. Always a disappointment in your mother's eyes. Ever cast in the shadow of the younger brother who had everything you didn't. You have no idea what it was like growing up with Madame Marie. I like the idea that the house is sick of all their shit. They're arguing and they're looping around and around in circles. It's interesting to think about what their presence inside of some special little pocket dimension made out of his psyche would have done to that psyche. Ah! <sighs> 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 A mattress. Good thing this was at the bottom of the stairs or I'd be... Death? How thrilling for you. Sometimes when I see the light leave my victim's eyes, I wonder what that is like. And then I remember, I don't care. Which one are you then? Which one of what? The inconvenient sins. I think we just met in gratitude. Uh, typical Ingra, keeping you to herself like that. Another thing worth noting is that the man in the flat cap can look through the windows of the impossible house. The window. The new old window. Kitty was right, it's here, but... There is someone outside on the street, under the street lamp. Is that... Is he... Under his hood. I think... I think that's a flat cap. I don't know, I I can't... It's like... 
the more I try to look at him, the more indistinct he becomes. I can't look at him directly, he's always... It's like those little dots that appear in your vision, always stuck at the periphery, impossible to look directly at because they're behind the lens of your eye. No adjustment you can make would allow it, that's all. A trick of perception. It's not a house, it's not really anywhere, and the things appearing outside of it are illusory, but the man in the flat cap can actually look inside. He and Sam are connected in this way through arcane time and space, in a way that means that Sam can never really avoid him, even if he might be able to put up boundaries which could prevent him from wreaking direct havoc upon him temporarily. We also see the way the house holds memories here really clearly with the scene of Madame Marie naming baby Sam and a little bit of an understanding of the mechanics at play when Scourge is able to step out of the memory and into Sam's present. Was there anything else? His name, Samael Apollo. Stop! Oh, little bit. What are you doing here? You can hear me. This again. I'm everywhere and nowhere, little bit. And if you wish it, I could be your staunchest ally. But there's a price. Very good, yes. There is always a price. I don't think Scourge could have got into the impossible house if Sam wasn't watching a memory of himself playing out here. Sam, are you listening to me? The white door. Here. I think you need to go through. What if they find you while I'm gone? Have I not just demonstrated it takes more than death to keep me down? I suppose. You must go through the door. I am certain of it. All right. Sam has to be inside the impossible house to come into their full power. To realise that potential, the scattered and fractured pieces of their psyche need to be forced back together. When the sins slit the throat of Sam's physical body, they briefly cut off his connection to the mortal world and he reconnects with the part of his soul that's been partitioned off to make the impossible house. As soon as that happens, it allows connections to reform. I was made to be this, but I feel it. I could always feel it, but I never knew what it was. Just beneath the surface, threatening to break free. There's no hope of Madame Marie controlling this, it's too much, how can I? do this. I can't. It's too much. It's too fast. It's too much. Too fast. It's too much. It's too fast. This power, which has been leaking through into Sam since the start of the show, floods across those new synapses, and Sam is able to fling the sins across reality and destroy the impossible house as it existed before. He can't reabsorb it, but he folds it into himself. Season one ends at dawn, ending with a beginning. I feel so alive. Is he drunk or something? He's fine. <laughs> I am the heir apparent. Yes. What? What does that mean? More importantly, who are you in line to get this crown from, exactly? The man who walks here and there. More extremely unhelpful titles, who is this guy? I... <laughs> you know... It's a rebirth for all of the characters, even the ones who didn't temporarily die in this episode, and none of them are quite prepared for what happens next. What were your favourite parts of this section of the show? 
Was there anything specific in the episodes I skipped over that you wish I'd stopped to talk about? Next time, I'll be talking about Sam and Oliver's relationship and placing a lens on each of them individually as characters too. I'll speak to you soon, and until then, remember to stay spooky, folks. <laughs>